Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and today I'm joined by artist, writer, curator and lecturer Paul O'Kane. Stephen Wilson, who lectures and coordinates postgraduate theory at Chelsea College of Art and joining us by phone in Berlin is writer Daniel Miller. Daniel will be discussing his polemic against political art. Stephen Wilson will be discussing the art scene in Taipei. Uh, but first I'd like to start with uh, Paul's feature, uh, New Romanticism, uh, which asks, is romanticism a dirty word? I'd like to start, if we can, by unpacking the, the sort of word romanticism and sort of its history and its usage. Um, I know, it's, to me, it seems aligned more closely towards literature. You know, you, you do mention that in the feature. Mm. Um, can we start basically where it started, Coleridge, Will, you know, William Wordsworth, uh, where, where, where it sort of born itself from? Uh, well, I think it has a slightly, slightly earlier provenance than that. The, uh, uh, the Jenner Romantics and Novalis um, precede uh, that kind of British manifestation, but the, the British manifestation did um, kind of inspire me. Um, there's a kind of uh, moment of epiphany described in the piece where I'm in the National Portrait Gallery yeah. uh, surrounded by people of that generation and realising how much technological change is taking place at the same time as this kind of uh, this response in the arts and really the the article emerges from that um, juxtaposition mm -hmm. of technology and romanticism um, and it's really driven by a sense of urgency about today that today, um, I talk about my students a lot, uh, today um, students uh, for the last 10 years or so, I sort of felt that they were kind of struggling to work out how to represent themselves as artists in a digitised, mm -hmm. uh, um, internetted sort of environment, etc. So I was kind of using romanticism a bit, a bit provocatively, but, uh, but I think genuinely looking at that period uh, in quite a British way, actually, initially, um, as uh, a moment in which technology is accelerating uh, in an unprecedented and sort of uh, disorienting manner uh, and the way that the arts have this kind of uh, uh, the, 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 have a certain rela a special relationship to that and I wasn't asking uh, my students or anyone else to uh, uh, replicate the strategies of John Constable or, or Wordsworth etc et et but to, to try to um, in a way I think what I was trying to do was, was trying to suggest that in an equally vertiginous moment um, artists might uh, need to uh, might be it might be useful to adopt some of those uh, strategies involving uh, imagination, a certain kind of distancing, mm -hmm. a, sort of, a certain sort of outsiderliness, a kind of intoxicated uh, euphoric uh, enthusiasm for change as well. You know. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, when I think of romanticism, I suppose I do think of the sort of priority of the one's feelings or, you know, the individual, the sense of genius. Uh, and also, I mean, going back to more the sort of technological debate, which is what I think really frames this article. I think, you know, you think of Frankenstein or that time of stitching the body together and this idea of the soul or and this sort of question around where the soul resided in the human being and that sort of fascination around that. Also electricity, technological f formations, and then you also bring in, again, the sort of, uh, well, I think we can go on to that, but more sort of like the social re reformations and so on at that time. But uh, in terms of straightforwardly, the technological transformations, do you, where do, I'm sort of interested in how you sort of parallel these two moments in a way. Well, 
Well, as I say, I mean, there's a kind of quantitative uh, comparison. There's, there's something about uh, the, the speed of uh, the industrial age that, that's, that drove a lot of people mad uh, and resulted in yeah. the production of a lot of asylums across Europe uh, in the most, developed, most fastly developing countries like England and Germany. Uh, you get this kind of maddening effect of a speed of change. Um, and, and uh, social breakdown, like the way that families are kind of uh, broken up to attend uh, to uh, meals and uh, mm -hmm. etc. You know, the, the, uh, and in a way, there's a kind of equivalent social problem and 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 sub problem about the subject today, in the way that uh, technology is. Uh, uh, in a way, strangely isolating us uh, mm -hmm. uh, at, the, the, at the same moment that it's connected us in an unprecedented manner. Everyone's also aware of a strange loneliness that it's producing uh, and even an unwillingness for people to uh, kind of confront each other directly. And some of my students found fantastic examples of that in contemporary cafe designs and mm -hmm. things like that, where people actually are encouraged to sit on their alone, sit alone with their laptops rather than eat with another student or eat with uh, someone mm -hmm. strange who might come and sit next yeah. to you, for God forbid. Um, so, uh, so, so, so I, was, I, was, I was kind of interested in that, the way that, the way that uh, how would artists uh, start to respond to that? You know, where you have a kind of loneliness uh, produced by technology, you, you suddenly evoke the ghost of Wordsworth again. Mm. <laughs> and well, wandering to, uh, lonely yeah, as a cloud. Yeah, yeah, wandering yeah. lonely as, a, as, an, as, as an app user. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, wherever possible. I mean, I do I, I do that a lot in my writing, my thinking, and my teaching. Really, just set up, set up uh, something that's uh, um, set up something that's productive, that's going to produce new connections, uh, speculations. Uh, especially when you're teaching, I think you have to do that. You can't dictate to students uh, what you think is interesting or new or clever or something. But you, you just have to set up a, a, a productive mm -hmm. sort of workshop. So bringing technology. Uh, romanticism, the present and the past together was just my kind of little chemistry set to yeah. get students working and uh, and uh, but 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 it hopefully it has wider applications and that's why it's in uh, in in Art Monthly and not just in my seminar. Absolutely, I, I want to. I think if we get back to the notion of why it has been a dirty word, mm. um, and often I suppose the term romanticism is often closely allied to sort of right wing formulation of government, you know, Hitler was a fan. Um, so what, why do you think, I mean, for me, that's what is interesting. Why do you think romanticism was so easily adopted and, uh, for, you know, sort of favoured by such... Well, it's politics. in that way. Yeah, I discussed. I mean, I, I did try to deal with that in my uh, article. Um, first of all, I I kind of suggested that uh, romanticism is supplanted by by realism in 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 Paris in the eighteen fifties, mm -hmm. um, and that that switch from romanticism to realism maybe leads us into a critical art. Maybe that's the birth of critical art. That moment of moving from romanticism to to uh, Realism, um, and from that point on, I suggest that, that romanticism starts to look like a dirty word. It starts to yeah. take on uh, the way there's a there's a way in which Courbet sort of rejects romanticism to produce his realism that makes that romanticism seem conservative, mm -hmm. and in a way, it suddenly accelerates then into into Hitler's uh, House in the Mountains or something like that, uh, um, um, and takes on takes on increasingly sort of conservative and right wing tones. I think. Um, Wait, did you think of other words you could use besides dirty? Besides dirty? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
hit me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it makes sense that it's dirty. So oh. I was kind of thinking, well, if it wasn't dirty and it's not clean, what other options oh, do we have? And and it feels an Tainted. unparalleled condition to have romantic dirty thoughts. Yeah, but um, it's, it's also very important. I think it's also very important that in the essay that I uh, strive, again, if you go back to this room at the National Portrait Gallery where you find uh, Shelley and Byron and uh, Mary Shelley, etc. there, you'll find, uh, you'll find the rights of man are being, uh, are being kind of inscribed at that moment. You'll find slavery is, slavery is starting to be abolished at yeah. that moment. Uh, and basically there is, there is a romanticism of the left, undeniably. Uh, yeah, Shelley is sometimes described as Red Shelley, yeah. uh, Wollstonecraft, the mother of Mary Shelley, all these people are radicals of the left. And um, uh, so, I'm, so I just wanted to quickly say that, so, so I, I think that uh, what I was trying to do with the article was suggest that at a moment of uh, significant technological and social change, um, where we are a bit lost for paradigms, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's useful to re look again at romanticism, not as in a way, as not as a thing, uh, maybe not as a, as yeah. a word or a thing, but as a kind of turbulence, mm-hmm. uh, a moment where uh, a volatile sort of turbulence from which something can emerge, and, and in a way, that's the way that's the use I was encouraging of romanticism. Yeah, you mentioned um, Hito Stael's work. Um, Liquidity Inc., which and her sort of ecological perspective um, as a sort of turning point, I think. Um, and I think, in contrast to say more obviously redolently romantic works, say by Tasta Dean or even the novelist W.G. Siebel, which you do mention, I think Stiel mentioned or sort of posits more this sort of technological shift that uh, that you sort of hinge a lot of the arguments on. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about st- how Stale fits in this argument? Well, yeah, I mean, I must admit I'm a bit of a fan. Right. Uh, a kind of admirer of, of her work and that film in particular. Yeah. And that piece uh, I thought was wonderful. You get this repetitious image of the Hokusai wave, which has become a kind of uh, pervasive um, Facebook uh, profile picture, etc., mm-hmm. etc., uh, kind of meme, um, a very successful meme. And she talks about... Uh, well, she talks about both neoliberalism uh, and some kind of response to it right. as behaving like weather. Mm. You know, it's something you're not going to. It's something you can't escape from. Uh, we have that sense of neoliberalism. It, it, it's something that, 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 that it's impossible for us to hide from. It's global. Mm. Uh, it operates like 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 weather. But her response to it, I think, is really interesting in that film. In that she talks about becoming water. Yeah. Uh, or, or recognizing that we are, you know, physically uh, yeah. mostly water, etc. Uh, and so this this idea of sort of becoming the weather to to respond to this inclement <laughs> weather uh, of neoliberalism is maybe the only reply. And I, mm. and I thought that was that was fascinating. And again, she's using imagination. It's a very if you see her her entertaining lectures, she's she's really uh, inspired yeah. and imaginative. And, mm. and that's what people like about her. That she'll she'll alight on some some useful theory, but she always arrives at it by imaginative and a kind of uh, inspired moment. Her her lectures are better, are more enjoyable than her uh, written text because you can actually see her thinking on her feet. Mm. So in in many ways, I thought she fitted my um, my interest in in technology and romanticism and, and yeah. how, how do we romantically respond to technology? Do you think she fits that idea of isolation and alienation that technology is bringing into your thoughts? The work somehow 
address is that in? I think, well, I think that I think that that film in particular it makes you laugh. It makes you it sort of inspires you in a way. And I think that in there, there's she's sort of finding a sort of a redemption or a, or a place where you can feel hopeful about the fact that you're stuck on your own with a laptop uh, mm -hmm. 12 hours a day. <laughs> there's something in, there's something redemptive about it. There's something entertaining about it. There's something politically. Uh, potent about it in that film. Uh, there's a kind of threat or a, prom or a kind of promise of uh, of a response, or mm, or I, at least mm, of a community. Mm -hmm. Maybe you know, if, if we if we think of ourselves the we as the, as the weather, then all these isolated individuals, like raindrops or something, they've become this kind of this cloud that uh, can can do something. Mm. Do you think? I mean, do you think about when you think about romanticism and this sort of? I think of a very strong sense of subjectivity within that uh, phrase or that term. Do you think, do you th would you argue that something like Steele is arguing for a resistance and is there a point of resistance in romanticism that you're allowing or trying to re rename or forward, you know, forward in a way? I think, there, I, think there, I think there's necessarily resistance, even though we feel outnumbered, we feel downtrodden, we feel overthrown. Um, there, is, there, there is a kind of... There, there are strategies of resistance. Just keeping us, t even mm -hmm. just keeping us ticking over, is a kind of uh, a kind of resistance. I think that um, the r romantic subjectivity. I mean, I think it's probably important to work out that uh, something about the difference between the individual and the crowd, the singular and the mm -hmm. multiple, the subjective and objective here. Because maybe we just need to blur those issues. You know, technology has blurred those mm -hmm. issues. As I say, at the moment we're most connected. We've become the most isolated. So there's a kind of contradiction or a paradox, but we're living that paradox. So maybe you know it's changed ideas of the subject. You know, yeah. I might log on as five different names or have diff ten different Facebook profiles. You know, all these kind of cliches yeah. of technology. But um, so the idea of uh, it's also true that that that, that we associate romantic romanticism with being alone and subjectivity. It's also the uh, the force like a wave. I think Dickens described the French Revolution like a wave, didn't he? Um, mm. Maybe in a beautiful way. I can't remember how. In A Tale of Two Cities, he talked about the revolution being. I've forgotten the phrase. That's a wonderful phrase where he talks about it, like uh, mm. you know, millions of little waves building up into this tidal wave that no one can stop. So what I'm trying to say is that. That the individual and the multiple, the, the mm. singular, singular and the, the multiple, the individual and the crowd, um, are both. Yeah, I think it's both. It's interesting because I think <laughs> often, a certain, certainly in English romanticism, there is a sort of pastoralism. You know, if you think of Tess, and I think what you're arguing is something much more forceful and violent. You know, I think of if you think of English pastoralism, you think of the soft pitter patter of rain against a window, the sort of lofty upstairs attic, you know, collecting a little bit of dust, perhaps. Well, there's many romanticisms, and yeah. I, I mentioned that in the essay. And, and you know, there's the fascist romanticism, there's the crowd, there's the yeah. French uh, passionate French crowd, there's the there's Wordsworth in in the lakes, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and we can draw. You know, we can draw fusions out, out, out of those things productively. I think. Um, Sorry, Stephen was going to... No, no, I'm just thinking about <clears throat> this um, technology um, and going back to Sterl's work and, and also that we seem to be hitting a point where disconnecting is so becoming so much more dominant as opposed to staying connected. And th thinking about romantic discourses in one's life or in other lives, it's about stepping away from technology in order to just simply connect. Um, and I'm wondering whether... We're at a point where it's very hard when you look at Sterl's work or her practice 
I found a different response to it where I didn't feel um, the optimism of the isolated desktop uh, as being something inspiring or I felt I felt kind of saddened that we've come to a point creatively and practice wise that suddenly is asking us to really think how do we integrate all these very demanding uh, media scapes that surround us. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just another response, but it's a really interesting way to think about mm -hmm. what it means individually. Mm, well, you do mention other artists as well. I have to point out that you do talk about sort of Travis Smalley, who's uh, currently at the Whitney Biennial, and you also do talk about John Raffman mm -hmm. and his um, talk with Omar Khalif um, at the ICA. So you do, you, you mean, you don't just, you know, doesn't just talk about STL, but uh, you, do, you do sort of... Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's another important... Uh, there's a lot in this essay. It's a great <laughs> subject. I mean, and, and, uh, I'm only picking up liquidity because that work I watch as well. Well, well so. it's, I mean, it's, good, it's, it's mm. a good comparison because I think he mm. just started doing something very successful with liquidity in Mm -hmm. um, quite innovative and uh, Travis Smalley and John Raffman I feel are slightly more predictable responses mm -hmm. I mean to be, to be honest uh, um, and I think that um, that, that, that both of them are, but, but one I mean Travis Smalley well both, both of them have in a way quite predictable responses in that um, they see the space the infinite space of the internet as mm -hmm. the new infinity with which we we deal in, in maybe a world that's lost its sort of sense of tra transcendence. Yeah. You kind of yeah. you, know, you can whiz around the world in five minutes, etc. Uh, the world has become small. Um, you know, Burio tried to use uh, history. You know, so, so, so maybe history is the last undiscovered continent. You know, maybe maybe that's the place of imagination for us. But people like uh, Smalley and um, Raffman. Um, indulge themselves deeply in the uh, uh, literally and explicitly techno-romantic yeah. world of video games where, where you're encouraged to go on infinite journeys uh, surrounded literally by uh, quite Germanic mountains or uh, etc. Yeah. exotic landscapes etc. So I find their, their responses less critical, less, yeah. less traction there, less surprises I suppose. Well, I feel like we have to move on just a tiny bit so to other exotic landscapes. <laughs> I like that link. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to Taipei uh, with uh, Stephen Wilson. Um, mm. Now, Stephen, you, you arrived back from Taipei, I think, maybe two months ago. So two let's hope your memory of it is uh, quite a shot. But, um, uh, we'll find out. <laughs> I think we'll we start, start with one of the artists that's uh, probably more well-known mm. here, which is Xu Bing, and he had a large retrospective um, of his works while you were there. Mm -hmm. um, and people may have seen the Jibing show at the V&A recently as well. Um, That's right. There was the the Jibing mm -hmm. show was at the the V&A, and I'm just trying to find the uh, reference to that, but I can't find it. It was, I think, it was based on a Chinese fable by Tao Wei Huang called the Peach Blossom Springs. Okay. Uh, um, but my my, I was there for about six to seven days, so it was a very uh, full-on trip and I saw a huge amount of work during that period but the at the Taipei Fine Art Museum uh, Xi Bing had his first very strong retrospective basically showing in about 12 rooms all his work um, and central to that was one particular piece called the character of characters which is a uh, a hand-painted animated film over about 60 meters mm -hmm. with six projectors and lasting um, around, I think it was about 30 minutes. Um, and it was really a grand tour that really encompasses um, his fascination with printmaking calligraphy and Chinese characters 
and how they how he uses them starting uh, into transitioning into different ideas of global discourse and how that handles he uses a very light-hearted touch to bring the work into a contemporary Beijing um, and I was reminded of that, as I mentioned in, in what I wrote it reminded me of the early work of William Kentridge and his nine drawings for proje- for projection which is a whole series of films but he takes a very different tone and there is this feeling of the moral do-gooder in China wanting to really um, advocate social instruction or a cause as a practitioner and bring that forward um, as a set of values that can address all kinds of harsh realities that exist in living in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the film is is very um, powerful in that way. It's a tapestry of ancient calligraphy, as I mentioned, and he uses a lot of modern-day signage, which he'll take from all kinds of cultures. He'll take a lot of branding and he'll almost debrand it and then re-superimpose it on the image, of, for example, of a traffic jam in central Beijing and he'll have a whole lot of cars and stop signs and coffee cups all integrated into this animation experience. Um, So Zhu himself um, is of Chinese descent um, but of course um, China and Taipei have a very troubled mm -hmm. and difficult history. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about actually how the uh, retrospective was greeted or you know received in Taipei. It's a, yeah, that's a very important point. I mean, while I was there, there were two key um, exhibitions going on. And um, being being from China and the whole relationship to Taipei and China is a very entangled and complicated one. And Thai, a lot of the Taiwanese artists really aim for much more exposure in China. It offers a lot more rewards. But generally, it's much harder to get that break for Chinese artists who are really established like Xi Bing. They're greeted with great respect, and it's it was a really look. Everyone really looked forward to the show. Um, so it's it's um, it's a complicated political rift that I tried to tackle more and more with the curators I met. But it's a highly sensitive area, and I don't feel um, I'm in any way an authority on talking about that relationship. Right. Although there were really st- there were a lot of stories I could project, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll stick to what I experienced. And um, one of the things I can say in in the Tina Kane Gallery, I mentioned a very young artist. Yeah, I want to talk about if we could more about mm. say because that's Zhu's a relatively well-known artist um, mm. within the Taipei art scene as well. I mean, what what are the other sort of what, what else is happening, basically? Are there smaller galleries, um, you know, the artist-run spaces, you know, and, and what, what, what is actually happening on a sort of local, more local level? Well, I think there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of artists working there and there's a lot of dominance within the universities. It's a very different setup. I was staying at the Taipei National University of the Arts, which is probably the, the most well-known um, institution there. And from that, there's a lot of collectives running alternative spaces mm-hmm. that are working more experimentally and trying to think about things outside of a commercial remit. Um, And some of those examples were, I mentioned, like uh, some of the galleries that have opened up or opening up in the business district Mm -hmm. when I mentioned one particular show. Um, And I think what what I found very, um, in terms of a generational viewpoint, I felt there was uh, a real interest in art and capitalism being central to the success of a Taiwanese artist when the younger generation are breaking that mold and wondering about that, which is really important to 
what I experience from talking to people. But in the work itself, it doesn't critically address that in the same way that we might discuss it. Right. Do you feel that's a common practice then within Taipei that the actual criticality of works produced or do they do they re directly reflect or comment upon the the history or nature of Taipei Taipei culture, or uh, are they more in complicit with maybe strategies of more, more of a Western or? It depends on on. I mean, essentially, going back to Xi Bing, he's uh, worked in America. He's been in Europe. He's a lot of influence in terms of the languages he's using in the work, in terms of how it's. Composed as a retrospective, the handling of the exhibition, the materials is very. You can see all these Western influences, and, and I think that that model of kind of a transnational Asian mobility that operates, for example, with the younger generation, it depends how much they've been influenced or travelled or moved around in order to discuss strategies or conceptual moves in their work. From what I saw. Those kind of things were not really addressed in the way that mm -hmm. I feel the culture is giving so many uh, other concerns around Taiwanese identity and what that represents. And do you know much about the funding situations there? I mean, is the is the models? Do they is there a public fund, uh, or uh, all these galleries are they more sort of commercially funded? Or do you know much about the kind of how money operates in terms of actually showing or representing what? I mean. I wouldn't it. know enough to talk right. about that. I would say that they seem to... Uh, uh, what I did notice was that funding for publication was really not a problem. Mm. Uh, every, every artist I met in their studio, and I went to a big studio block for the less, let's say, um, exhibiting artists, they all had big publications um, that were very well produced. And, Pleased to be there. Yeah, <laughs> for publishing, definitely. Yeah. And, um, and bilingual as well, not just. Right. And that was another thing I noticed, that the, the, the writers that were, uh, let's say, the monograph writers or journalists, whatever, were translated, were actually of a really high caliber. They were really, really considered and very well written and beautifully translated. And I felt that was a very interesting nod towards um, a disparity between what's critically being addressed and what's actually being produced. Mm. Okay. Um, and that would be something I'm, I'm wondering where that's going to be in the near future. Because you are planning on returning to Taipei. I am planning to yeah. return, yes. And I mean, do you want to talk a little bit more about, say, the comparative space or the sort of what you think the comparisons are between, say, a London art scene and, say, a Taipei art scene? It's a really great question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think it does fall down to um, a sense of how much. Um, I mean, what, what, there was one really good example. In, in um, We went to Market Taipei, which is the other key mm -hmm. space, the Museum of Contemporary Art. And during that, they had uh, Kai Shizong, who's a very well-known Chinese artist, had a big exhibition there. Um, and when we went into the room, he was there while all his work had these big bronze figurative sculptures. And he had a whole barrage of... Um, photographers and press around him and he was kind of handshaking everyone um, when we walked in and and I realized afterwards we were told a story about a curator about another very established Chinese artist who comes to all, all interviews with a makeup artist and we were thinking about how this is kind of a new branding a new era of what it is to work as a prolific artist right and, and I think it just shows where uh, let's say distribution and representation are hitting a whole new era and I don't feel mm. that's necessarily the way forward here mm. and in terms of 
the identity of a practitioner in mainstream culture. It's just not as celebrity orientated at all. And I'm wondering if that's going to play a key role in dividing distinctions around alternative or more radical practices. Interesting, interesting point. Paul, do you have any experience or knowledge of that South, you know, Asia or Far East cultures? Um, I've got a kind of a relationship with Korea, and yeah. uh, I wrote a small piece for Art Monthly on a sort of Korean scene um, a few years ago, um, where I kind of quickly kind of whizzed around mm-hmm. Seoul trying to find uh, what was happening. Um, yeah, I mean, very different. I mean, very different scene. I mean, I suppose one thing, one one important thing to say is that when when you're in a city like Seoul, anyway, you do feel like you're part of an incredibly dynamic and sort of emerging culture. And whenever you come back to London and get on the Piccadilly line at yeah. Heathrow, you feel like you've gone back to the 1930s. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, so, so I do get that sense of a kind mm. of incredible optimism, a sort of a, a future. Um, at the same time, I didn't feel like the art world there was was highly developed, um, but some, there are areas where there's an awful lot of money, mm. as you're sort of suggesting, pumping yeah. into mm. to it. And so there's a certain area which is very, very high-end, um, yeah. and then b- uh, below that, very difficult to find um, a dynamic scene, really. Yeah. But, but I think I think that's changing. There's obviously been a lot of exchange of Asian right. students coming to London and going to New York, perhaps, or Berlin, and mm-hmm. going, yeah. going back and feeding into the culture. I mean, I would say that the, in terms of... Um, Thinking about different Asian communities and countries, the the, the mentalities are vastly different, mm, as you yeah. know. So, I mean, and even in my own students, I, I really see that difference all mm. the time. I mean, I've currently two students from Taiwan, and I think I've got 20 from China. Mm-hmm. So it, it's completely different. And, and Taiwan is far smaller. It's much more... Uh, of it's a much more easy city in Taipei to, to run around and see things. It has a very different energy. It's a lot more relaxed, whereas Shanghai is astronomically yeah. urban and demanding. Mm. Okay, good. Well, I'll see you. Daniel, are you still on the phone? Are you there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, lovely. Great. We can hear you. Um, I'd like to bring you in at this point, if that's possible. Um, talking about other kind of globalised uh, art worlds, uh, you sort of uh, you raise a number of uh, issues in your polemic this month, um, which discusses a sort of uh, the idea that uh, well, a left wing con- conspiracy is the title for the piece. Um, so it's the idea of um, how far we're sort of complicit with a sort of neoliberal agenda, while ultimately um, you know representing and saying another. Um, do you want to start just briefly unpacking some of the points that you've raised in your polemic? Well, I don't know if I would necessarily want to agree with your description, <laughs> but I guess what I was trying to drive at was the way in which, especially the kind of language that people use in talking about art and the way that certain works of political art and political artists fit into this quite specific discourse. To get back to something that one of your guests was saying earlier, Paulo Kane talking about the works of Tito Styrell, in the work and also in the descriptions of the work and in many other places as well, you see these terms and they just really trip off the tongue, like neoliberalism, for example, and everybody uses them. But it doesn't seem to me that there's actually really that much which is said, which is so precise. So I wonder how these things are functioning. And Mm. I want to draw attention to that. Mm. I mean... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
do do you well in and then in your instance then what what how do you understand say the term neoliberalism because you talk about you know how we share common values basically anti-american despite the predominance of us institutions you know post-colonial despite a sort of as you term crypto crypto colonialist organization of the global art world anti-western etc etc um do you want to is is that for you the nub of uh, your argument around those issues around uh, to me it seems to you you're arguing around percent perception um is that is that true you have all of these institutions all across the art world and they're programming artists to explicitly define themselves as political and their work is political they are political artists this is in a way a kind of quite new category of artists and it suggests a certain medium in which this artist works. Now, my problem is that functionally these institutions are elite institutions, and by presenting these artists, they're presenting them in a space in which the visitor is invited to, to what exactly? I mean, to look upon these kinds of examples of, of, of political seriousness and seek to imitate them or to respect them or to... how do you read a critique which seems to actually be coming from the established powers of society to, to a big degree? So I, I, I have to say that it, it seems to me like a kind of quite novel sort of twist in a, in a certain sort of propaganda system because it's suggesting a kind of inherent criticality in a certain industry which actually in no way has that position in the global um, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of, you're saying it's sort of rendered toothless somehow by the institutional forces. Is that what you're sort of saying? I mean, I don't know, you know, really whether it's even a question of toothlessness or not, because it doesn't seem to me that the relationship that this kind of art practice has with, you know, politics as such is so direct, actually. It's not as if necessarily a certain critique is defanged. It's more that actually the, the kinds of critiques which are being delivered have a, an alternative function to criticism or defanging, but simply serve as this kind of almost secret language by means of which global actors communicate. Mm -hmm. um, you sort of... So, for, for instance, what I'm what sort of interested in drawing out a little bit is is the idea of what the alternative. Uh, you talk a little bit about that sort of that word alternative, um, and I wondered, although there's a, a certain critique of, uh, say, the institution and how they're complicit with certain strategies and so on, I wondered at which point do you feel. Or do you have any examples or thoughts around where moments like have sort of punctured that or altered or changed it? Do you know Do you know what I'm sort of saying? I mean, I wondered if you had any thoughts around certain artist practices or uh, even groups. I, I mean, in, in the back of my mind, I was thinking what you thought of something like the Precarious Workers Brigade. Well, I think I'm quite a traditional guy, you know. I mean, I like, uh, I like works which have a certain imagination and... Mm -hmm. uh, I think also some some originality of perspective. I think that I guess the perspective that I'm trying to talk about is this, is it's almost you know just the fact that it is so generic that makes me suspicious. It's not to do with the content of the of the politics. It's to do with the way in which the politics is functioning. 
But you're uh, As if, hmm? sorry. Hi, um, Daniel. It's Stephen here. Um, are, are you talking about this outside of the practitioners and in the wider construction of working in the arts? I think in, in, in some degree, yes, because you can see that education programs are quite specifically geared in some ways towards somehow politicizing artists. I think artists are presented, at least in the schools where I've been, you know, they've, they've, mm. they've really sought to present artists with extremely political material and for them to situate their work politically. And I think that, that form of situation, which is happening has got to be a more network-based than actually somehow real effort at radicalization. I mean, we're not really living in, you know, under Mao's Red Guard. We're doing something else, which is to do with somehow keeping an industry going in a way and, and, and actually even extending it to the markets where they also can talk about neoliberalism and they can also talk about all these kinds of supposedly really big things that, that face us as, as contemporary people. Mm-hmm. And it's another way that an artist can, can, in fact, globalize themselves by talking about globalization. You raise it in one section, you sort of talk about if the historical artist was a threatening figure, an untimely visionary, uncannily located just outside the present. The contemporary artist is a laptop strategist anchored in the moment, dispatching emails from departure lounges between connecting flights. Um, I wondered, you know, I mean, it's an interesting argument, certainly. Um, and also, I think, links back, actually, to the Romanticism article in a sort of way. Um about how we're sort of, I, I wondered, in a way, what is the what is the laptop strategist here? Who who is that, and um, what are they what are they offering? Is it is it a critique? Is it offering as a, you know, a, a, is it just a, a is it just reflecting a contemporary moment? Uh, you know, it's my thinking. I think I think a, a laptop strategist maybe is like the definition is a McKinsey consultant or somebody like this, someone doing international business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fine, you know. Actually, it's in a way itself somehow a kind of romantic figure. I mean, if you read William Gibson novels, you know they're filled with these kinds of people. And I think artists more and more are like this kind of this kind of a person. I think uh, Hito Styrell, for example, is the definition of, of of such an artist because she's somebody whose work is showing really all across the world, and it's seeking to engage with these profound contemporary themes, but they are also, in a way, the themes that appear to somebody who is somehow enjoying this lifestyle, and therefore it's also quite difficult to take critiques of neoliberalism coming from actors who, if they're successful, are essentially operating highly neoliberal business models, you know, of selling products in these kinds of places and, and international kind of supply chains and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, if I can say something, uh, hi Daniel, it's Paul. Yeah, I just I, I think Paul. that I think that in one of the other films, uh, Hito style showed at the ICA. I've forgotten the title now. The Magic Bullet or the Invisible Bullet. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she she. I think I think to her credit, she um, she really explicitly acknowledges the paradoxes and contradictions that she's caught up in. She talks about uh, being invited to talk to, to speak at the Turkish uh, the, mm. uh, the, the oh, that's uh, right. Biennale. Yeah. 
while outside uh, and talks about these bullets mm -hmm. uh, uh, while outside the the riots are trying to take place and the, the, the same people who are funding the police outside who are hitting the rioters are funding her to come and speak at the Biennale so she, she I think she explicitly acknowledges that, that is the museum a battlefield is that, that uh, possibly yeah. yeah possibly yeah um, can I just say something else just, just to open up the, 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 the conversation a bit uh, first of all I just wanted to say I, I thought it was a really electric piece of writing that, that you, you, you made Daniel and, and uh, it, it's very accurate in a way it's suddenly exposing a kind of horror horrific vision of all the institutions <laughs> peddling this kind of quasi-political art which is actually totally ineffectual because it's so institutionalised and I think that's a horrible vision and a very sad and in a way quite sinister vision but the question I had for you was something to do with left and right that you talk, you the, 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 there's a subtitle of the piece is a left wing conspiracy and there's an idea. Well, I, that wasn't that wasn't. Oh, maybe title. it's not you. Okay, I know I know that syndrome, but uh, but, uh, but but there is something in the in the in the essay where you talk about um, the radical the, the left is sort of um, monopolised radicalism, uh, and there's a sort of we're not quite sure. Are you trying to say that that? Um, the debate should be more plural, that there should be a right-wing voice or some kind of meta-development of the left voice that takes us beyond this institutionalized argument? Well, I want to ask, where is this voice coming from? Because I don't think it's the radical voice of the people. I mean, if you look at the political mm. landscape, you see, you know, very, very radical forms of right-wing populism which exist and uh, which exist for all kinds of reasons and as a different kind of subject. But the art world doesn't reflect those voices, and and why does it not actually? Because is it is it is it in fact that there's a kind of ideological gatekeeping mechanism in effect? I don't think so. I think it's to do with the fact that the politics of the art world are really the politics of a very particular sector of society, and what the art world says about society is is really in a sense the speech of this sector. But the art world also somehow wants to assert a certain kind of intellectual superiority in its points of view. And this is hard to take. I think that if you want to be for radical politics, I think this is totally fine. I think that the, there should be a place in which the art world and artists can flex on that and express that. Mm. But I think that if that happens, and it should be democratic, and actually we should have really a clearer picture of the political movement in our society without always looking at them from the same kind of same kind of fairly narrow perspective. Um, can, can I interject there? There's a point towards the end of the article where you describe, and I quote, a staleness consistent with the growing distance between the art world and non-art world people. And you talk about the same artists repeat the same basic positions. End quote. And, and I think it goes back to what I asked before about working within an art context. And one of the things you, you've talked a lot about curators and institutions, but there's no mention of writers. And I feel we're surrounded here by writers. I'm wondering within this thinking, um, uh, are there alternatives, ways for writers to, to adopt some of the criticism that you're suggesting? I think there are plenty of really great writers out there who are definitely capable of, of writing great pieces. I think that it's interesting to get back to what Paulo Kane was saying, because actually the writer is a very romantic figure, and all of his examples were writers. And mm -hmm. the, the idea of the writer, you know, is, is exactly somebody who 
in a way through the somehow outside in it is capable mm-hmm. of a certain transcendence to something which is not widely mm. thought to be the case anymore. Well, and, I mean, and so, it, it, this is it's the rhetoric, rather rhetoric. That's what I'm hitting what on. What that points towards is, to me is that the problem is the institution. And your writers are maybe people who can exist outside the institutions. Is that is that because mm-hmm. we, we, mm-hmm. you're talking about museums a lot in your piece? And uh, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking that you know one of the problems that the museum has for itself is that there's a kind of pleasure principle at stake in the museum as well. It's, it's, it, as you sort of say, it's like a tourist uh, site as well. So the museum uh, becomes uh, quasi, you know, sort of pseudo politicized. But it has to do politics yeah. in a pleasant environment, in a pleasant way, which makes it this horrible kind of toothless politics. Yeah, and also within that, you know, you think of institutions, there is a panic, you know, in the current climate of uh, funding. Literally, you know, if, you, if you're actually organising a series of events or talks or so on, you are beholden a little bit to audience figures, getting people in. And, I mean, these are the thornier issues, aren't they, around actually what an institution stands for and represents and also how it should function in society. Mm. Um, I don't think there's easy answers to these questions, though. I think It sounds very much like what Walter Benjamin called the aestheticisation of mm. politics. Yeah. <laughs> you raise, actually, I, I do want to get to... Uh, you talk about the negative criticism of powerful institutions and tendencies has almost vanished in the trade press and newspapers, as well as specialist journalists in favour of a form of advertising masquerading as a phenomenological description. Um, I hope that you think Art Monthly is one of those free places where you can voice your uh, discussions and thoughts, uh, uh, Daniel. But, uh, uh, I mean, I was thinking more, even, in, you know, I was to open the paper yesterday, and, of course, Penelope Curtis is being completely slated in the Times. Um, so there are, I mean, there are examples, perhaps, where, you know, that is, you know, that's, that is mainstream media, um, where there is a kind of, there are voices still there. Um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that yourself, Daniel. I think there are, there are voices outside of the art world which do criticize it, and I think I would include, you know, critics writing for major newspapers as, as being, in a way, outside of the art world. I think within the art world, um, I mean, just to take a very concrete example, I think there is a problem in curators reviewing exhibitions, especially curators who work for public institutions, reviewing exhibitions at other public institutions, because ine- inevitably it becomes a job application actually, in which a few days down the line, someone will say, oh, well, what about this guy? He, you know, we know this guy. We met this guy. He wrote a nice review. And then sooner or later, they have the job. And so as a result, you know, who actually is going to really put their opinions on the line? I think they're going to repeat kind of the consensus point of view, and that will be reflected also in programming. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think there is a certain complicity that, you know, that always goes along with the fact that it's actually, you know, we all have lives and, you know, we need money. Uh, and that, in a sense, can be a quite a dampening factor in terms of any form of independence or alternativity. Um, but I suppose, that what I, you know, can we escape that? Is, is, is that something, do you think, we can escape? I mean, isn't, isn't it not endemic? Well, I think, you know, I mean, obviously, the fact that no one really makes any money writing reviews, is, 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 is in a way. I mean, this is the reason, because it means that the only reason why you would do it, except if you're kind of a psychopath, like, mm-hmm. is that uh, you think that it kind of fits into your strategic plan. 
You know? I mean, I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, what's interesting about if you looked at, uh, you know, if you looked at a lot of the bylines um, of writers that do work for, you know, that we publish in Art Monthly, you will notice that there's very few actually that just say writer, as you describe uh, most are writers and curators. And I think that is a sort of interesting trend um, in terms of actually who does, who writes. Um, and the two now are an inseparable, um, I don't know, uh, you know, career, I think. I know, and I think this is a calamity, actually, because it, it, as your great former Prime Minister Tony Blair said, it's like an orgy of cross-dressing in which everyone's wearing more than one hat at the same time. And therefore, you know, like the independent role of a writer or a critic has really been erased. Mm. You know, I think, I think, and I think that's... I think that is a very alarming phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I was struck by your piece. I enjoyed your piece because it did. It does sort of seem to go out on a limb. I wasn't quite sure what the limb was, but <laughs> but you were, but you seem to be uh, in a quite a radical place and stirring up um, thoughts. Uh, and uh, and as I say, I, I recognise the scenario you you painted, and you've been to too many sort of. Things that are, that are kind of advertised as a sort of symposium, uh, uh, or, or there will be questions after the talk, and it's all very perfunctory or or cursory. You know, it's like a, t- a box has been ticked, and we've done the little conversation bit when you really want people to, to really talk. And, and and I'm just sort of interested in how you take these. I mean, it's wonderful network of institutions as well. I mean, it's an amazing resource of institutions where you can have art and debate and publications etc that is that is an amazing resource and how you how you could actually stir that up again mm-hmm. or stir that up mm-hmm. and make it more volatile what, what you what would you do to um to 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 kind of stir up this this horribly complacent and box ticking uh, sort of scenario that you paint i think that i think that institutions should just be a lot more anarchic in the kinds of discussions that they want to host I think that they play it safe, and mm. actually, that this this is another point. Is you know the I mean you know just another conference on immaterial labor and it and it you know and how terrible it is. I mean, this is actually a very safe position, you know, because what is going to actually happen there is a lot of people who went to Goldsmiths are going to come and they're going to. And they're going to discuss Franco Barati, and 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 nobody gives a shit outside of this <laughs> small circle. And everyone knows that, you know. And everybody walks away from these conferences thinking, God, God, you know, that was pretty mm. dull. But but I mean, I don't know. Why can't why can't we have uh, why can't we have really? No, I think you're, I think it's, it's the crazier perspectives in in in, in mm. British society in mm. the Tate. Why why can't you keep me in the Tate modern? I think that would be much more interesting if you want to actually talk about ideas and challenge ideas and confront ideas that means is that the only way to go is that the only way to go to bring the right into the debate into the institution are there other things you can bring in into the institution or is can the left uh, as i said earlier on can the left uh, develop uh, in in some other way i think you should bring everybody into the institutions and i don't think i'm making this claim from, mm. from the perspective of the left. I think that's for the people who identify as leftists mm. to, to, to think about for themselves. I mean, you know... Yeah, the left should take risk in order to progress. Or make, that's the way I read anyway. Sorry yeah, I, I mean, I think... Well, I, you, you do talk about the everybody, and I wonder, you know, the beginning and ending of that word is so... You know, it doesn't, it doesn't exist, really. Um, but yet at the same time, 
you know, we talk about that everybody, but yet within that argument, you single out sort of, you know, the Palestinian or the Iraqi or the the, inv- the open invitation for a, a, a globalized maybe um, invitation. Um, so I wondered where you draw that distinction. Well, I don't know if I if I if I could. I mean, it's. I, I wouldn't like to say I'm singling out these these people. I mean, it's not that. Um, I think there shouldn't be Iraqi artists, or there shouldn't be Palestinian artists. I think there should be, but I, I, I do wonder about the role in which they're being instrumentalized to play, especially in European art world context. I mean, for example, after the Egyptian Revolution, like all of a sudden some money became available, I suppose, and so all these Egyptian artists started coming to Europe and kind of talking about the revolution and like you know how they were how they were acting as artists in this kind of a context. And in a way, that's great. But then I also wonder, you know, is that really the best thing for them to be doing, actually? I mean, I think it, it can't mm-hmm. be. And, and, and the, the, there, is a, there is a way in which, like, this circuit actually is not really a benevolent one. I mean, there's, there's one thing to be hosting discussions and having discussions and provoking discussions, and I think it's correct to some extent to say that is a resource. But that also definitely changes the object under discussion, and you have to ask who are the people who are who are participating in the discussion. What else could they be doing? And actually, how do they kind of get stuck there? And I think this happens to a lot of artists and, and writers and other people. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts here, Stephen? Do you have any reflections to add? I was just thinking about the title actually, and I'm not sure, Daniel, if it was your title or or monthly's, but. Maybe maybe it's against an apolitical art rather than against political art, and I'm wondering whether there, there seems to be a leaning towards a more radicality, but it's very hard to understand how that might be produced, which I think Paul has tapped into a little mm. bit. And well, it's it's a fascinating discussion. I am definitely intrigued. I think that um, I I mean I can't say how could be or should be, because actually, you know, no one will listen to me anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, I can only, I can only assess the phenomenon which, which appears to me, and, and, and yeah, I suppose... I think you should push it further. I, disis- I think I it's really... I, th- I think you should push it further and make people listen to you. You, yeah. you say, there's a sort of nutshell sentence here, where I just discovered, where I just found again, that says um, there's been... It talks about uh, the riots... The riots kind of finds a way to criticise uh, public funding, etc. And then you said uh, you, you say there's no corresponding self-reflection on the inside, and I think that that is really interesting. Mm. That, that, that this whole complacent institutional machine, which which you 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 do sort of open our eyes to, it's really there. We all know what it is once you've described it, and it is quite uh, very worrying. And I think the idea of self-reflection on the inside. Um, to really make use of mm. these institutions is a brilliant thing to push people to do. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to go home and do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering, do you have any thoughts on moments where things have poked through? I mean, do you have any viewpoints on that or any you know, examples perhaps where you think actually that's broken through this otherwise self-enclosed envi- you know, sort of discourse? Well, I don't know. I worked, I worked for Zemaevsky's Berlin Biennale, which is, in a, in a way, I suppose you could say, sort of the embodiment of everything I'm criticizing. But actually, I quite like Shumayevsky, and I think mm-hmm. it was an interesting experience, because it seemed to me that, I don't know whether this is true or not, it's hard to understand this guy, but like it seemed to me that he 
really somehow wanted to to go to the limit. And so as a result, for example, like, you know, he invited all these losers from Occupy, basically, just to, to squat in the Kunstwerke for months on end, you know, with the kind of Occupy dogs. And, and the institution was so reactive mm-hmm. in attempting to basically stop the guy that they hired to make a scandal from making a scandal. And I, I think in terms of broken, breaking through, that definitely opened my eyes a lot to um, the limits that the institution places on how far this will actually go. But maybe that wasn't really your question. I mean, I, I don't know whether... Yeah, it was my qu- yeah, that, that was my yeah. question, yeah. That was my question, yeah. Um, but that's I, in a negative sense, actually, rather than a positive one. Hmm. Well, I, just, I think... And it failed as a result. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think either failed or successful, I think if they're still questioning or pro, pro, uh, sort of probing at some sort of resistance or uh, yeah, response to, I think that's still generating a discussion that's valid and worthwhile. Um I don't know if anyone else has any... We're just running out of time here, so if anyone else has got any other thoughts, quickly... To, oh, yes, Daniel, you did choose for your article... Uh, the fee for your article to be donated to the English Collective of Prostitutes. Um, do, you, do you want to add why you particularly chose that, uh, that charity? Well, um, I don't know. I have some personal reasons for doing it. Okay. I think that... Um, I think that, you know, actually... If I if I may be permitted to make a, Absolutely. Make a political statement, that society's hypocrisy towards sex workers, I think, is actually evident and um, expressive of society's hypocrisy as a whole. Mm-hmm. Because you know we have this attitude in which somehow this is a product that should be made available on demand. I mean, there's demand for it, but on the same time, we want to stigmatize the workers who are providing it. And, you know, there's a lot of politics, actually, I think, around this issue in the UK at the moment um, because of this kind of feminist um, proposal to adopt the so-called Scandinavian model. Mm -hmm. And it's really, for me, just such a grotesque idea of sort of liberalism masquerading as guardians of, of the weaker parts of society, when in fact it's just completely about their own narcissistic self-regard. Mm-hmm. So I wish the English collective of prostitutes more power in their, in their fight. Well, thank you for raising that with us, Daniel. Um, uh, as I said, we're running out of time here, so uh, unfortunately we have to draw a close to today's program, but uh, I'd like to thank my sincere thanks to both Paul, Stephen, and to Daniel in Berlin. Uh, and for those who wish to find out more about the subjects discussed in the um, what we talked, talked about today, they're in the current issue of Art Monthly. Uh, many thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you, Chris. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thanks, bye.